Hi, and welcome back to the Learning and Labor podcast. This is part two of my two-part episode on the life of John Peter Altgelt, the namesake of Altgelt Hall here on the UIUC campus. I definitely recommend you listen to part one before listening to this, so if you haven't, please go do that. We uh, went through all of Altgeld's life up until the point where he is now governor, and we talked about the pardoning of the uh, men convicted for their actions at Haymarket Square, or their alleged actions at Haymarket Square, and how much of a, of a big deal that was for Altgeld and his legacy. And now we're going to talk about probably the second most famous event in Altgeld's life, his involvement in the Pullman strike. It therefore seems to me most important that you, the people of the state of Illinois, should know your university. Is it doing what you want it to do as the people's university? You are the owners, and your decision is final, 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 final. Learning and labor, labor. For the people and by the people. The people's university. So as per usual, uh, you might hear me saying this a lot, uh, to understand the Pullman strike, we need to understand some of the political and economic context of the time and the figures surrounding it. So we already kind of talked about the Gilded Age and the context around that in part one, but specifically, we want to focus in on the Pullman Palace Car Company, which uh, was founded and owned in large part by a single man, George Pullman. And uh, in 1894, he was also serving as the president of the company which is more commonly just known as the Pullman Company. So the Pullman Company was known for its comfortable sleeping train cars. This is what they produced and manufactured. And the workers who made those cars mostly lived in a company town outside of Chicago called Pullman, Illinois. And like other company towns, which were actually very common at this time, nearly everything in Pullman, from food to rents, were controlled and owned by the Pullman Company. So at the time of the strike, about 35% of Pullman's workforce was represented by the American Railway Union, or ARU. Eugene Debs was at this point the president of the ARU. Earlier in the year, in April, the union had ended a successful strike against the Great Northern Railroad Company. So this earlier strike had shown that in this period marked by a major economic recession, they were able to stand up to the big corporations that just cared about their profits. And as we know from part one, to think about more of the political actors we're, we're discussing here, uh, John Peter Altgeld is governor of Illinois. He was elected in 1892, and the Democratic ticket did well nationally as well. And former President Grover Cleveland would return to office, defeating incumbent Benjamin Harrison and the populist candidate James Weaver. Despite sharing the same party, the governor and the president had some distance between them politically. Cleveland represented the more pro-business swing of the Democratic Party, whereas Altgeld was growing a strong pro-labor reputation. And one task in front of the pro-labor governor was preventing the death and violence which had shaped the struggle for workers' rights in the state of Illinois. Particularly, of course, the Haymarket Affair and its aftermath weighed heavily on Altgeld, who, as we concluded in Part 1, would end up pardoning three of the anarchists and socialists wrongfully convicted of murder in its aftermath. Altgeld realized his power was fairly limited in these disputes, but he was determined to do what he could. He made clear as well to the state militia of Illinois that their goal was not to provoke and attack workers, but just to keep things in order. There would be several tests of this idea and, and, and Altgeld's ability to actually do this before we actually get to the Pullman strike. So in June of 1893, there was a strike in Lamont, Illinois, which resulted in fighting between sanitary ship canal contractors and quarry workers. Three workers died, and as a result of these deaths, Altgelt sent in the state militia to calm the site. But he didn't just stop there. He actually personally followed the militia and was there on the site to help mediate the situation. Upon reflection on this event, Altgelt blamed the violence squarely on the bosses of the companies. And unsurprisingly, labor unrest continued in early 1894, as there was a nationwide strike of soft coal miners. Altgeld sent in the militia promptly to the Illinois sites of the strike, instructing them specifically that it is not the business of soldiers to act as custodians or guards of private property. And this time, bloodshed was prevented. Altgeld was trying to use the state militia to keep peace and order, rather than their more common role serving merely as another arm of the rich and powerful. And while he wasn't able to completely prevent violence in these two cases, he had seen some success. The Pullman strike would serve as another opportunity for Altgeld to prove his ability to manage the situation in a productive way. 
And to begin to explain what happened during the strike, we need to talk about what caused it. So in the midst of the recession, the, the Pullman company cut the wages of the workers who manufactured their cars by around 25%. Most of these workers lived in the Pullman company town, where there was no corresponding reduction in rents or any other costs. So this put the already poor workers in horrible conditions, with many of them approaching starvation. But the Pullman company, which had millions of dollars in reserves from their massive profits, rejected any requests for negotiation or arbitration with the workers. So George Pullman's greed and total disregard for his workers' well-being had forced them towards only one option, a strike. It began on May 11, 1894. And one month later, the strike was still going, and the American Railway Union would gather for its national convention and deliberate on how they could show solidarity with the Pullman car workers. Ultimately, they voted on a total boycott of Pullman cars, unless the company agreed to arbitration. This meant that no member of the ARU would handle any Pullman car. The solidarity boycott began with the switchmen, who could refuse to add or remove Pullman cars to the trains. Debs predicted that the Pullman company's backlash to these workers would cause more to walk out in solidarity, and he was proven right. On June 27, 1894, 5,000 workers walked off the job. The next day, 40,000 workers had left their jobs, and on the third day, the total rose to 100,000 workers. By June 30th, 125,000 workers on 29 railroads had quit work as part of the boycott on handling Pullman cars. This held up traffic very effectively, and specifically, much of the chaos caused by this boycott was centered in Chicago. Altgeld was confident he could handle this situation in his state and keep the peace, but it wouldn't be left in his hands. After allegations that the delivery of mail, a federal responsibility, had been threatened, President Grover Cleveland would order federal troops in to quash the strike. Knowing Altgeld's pro-labor reputation, Cleveland's administration did not consult him before sending federal troops to his state. This prompted a now-famous telegram correspondence between the governor and the president, which began when Altgeld sent the following message. Honor Grover Cleveland, President of the United States, Washington, D.C. Sir, I am advised that you have ordered federal troops to go into service in the state of Illinois. Surely the facts have not been correctly presented to you in this case, or you would not have taken the step, for it seems entirely unnecessary and, as it seems to me, unjustifiable. Waiving all questions of courtesy, I will say that the state of Illinois is not only able to take care of itself, but it stands ready to furnish the federal government any assistance it may need elsewhere. Our military force is ample and consists of as good soldiers as can be found in the country. They have been ordered promptly whenever and wherever they were needed. As governor of the state of Illinois, I protest against this and ask the immediate withdrawal of the federal troops from active duty in the state. Should the situation at any time get so serious that we cannot control it with the state forces, we will promptly ask for federal assistance. But until such time, I protest with all due deference against this uncalled for reflection upon our people and ask the immediate withdrawal of these troops. I have the honor to be, yours respectfully, John Peter Alkel, Governor of Illinois. Cleveland was not impressed by Altgeld's telegram, claiming it was irrelevant and frivolous. He quickly sent the following reply. Honorable John P. Altgeld, Governor of Illinois, Springfield, Illinois. Sir, federal troops were sent to Chicago in strict accordance with the Constitution and laws of the United States, upon the demand of the Post Office Department that obstruction of the mails should be removed, and upon the representations of the judicial officers of the United States that the process of the federal courts could not be executed through the ordinary means, and upon competent proof that conspiracies existed against commerce between the states. To meet these conditions, which are clearly within the province of federal authority, the presence of federal troops in the city of Chicago was deemed not only proper, but necessary, and there has been no intention of thereby interfering with the plain duty of the local authorities to preserve the peace of the city. And at this point, Cleveland hoped the conversation would end there. He was annoyed to hear Altgeld object to his authority. But the Illinois governor was not going to give up there, and he sent yet another telegram in response. Sir, your answer to my protest involves some startling conclusions and ignores and invades the question at issue. That is, the principle of local self-government is just as fundamental in our institutions as is that of federal supremacy. As for the situation in Illinois, that is of no consequence now compared with the far-reaching principle involved. True, according to my advices, federal troops have now been on duty for over two days, and although the men were brave and the officers valiant and able, 
Yet their very presence proved to be an irritant because it aroused the indignation of a large class of people who, while upholding law and order, had been taught to believe in local self-government and therefore resented what they regarded as unwarranted interference. Inasmuch as the federal troops can do nothing but what the state troops can do there, and believing that the state is amply able to take care of the situation and to enforce the law, and believing that the ordering out of the federal troops was unwarranted, I again asked their withdrawal. John Peter Alto. At this point, Cleveland's patience was quite strained. He didn't want to keep hearing the objections of his subordinate, and Altgeld's messages were really long. For context, the portions read here are actually abridged, and in the second telegram, Altgeld went through five different reasons Cleveland was wrong in a nine-paragraph-long response. So, on July 6th, Cleveland sent the final telegram of the exchange. While I am still persuaded that I have neither transcended my authority nor duty in the emergency that confronts us, it seems to me that in this hour of danger and public distress, discussion may well give way to active efforts on the part of all in authority to restore obedience to law and to protect life and property. As the governor and the president exchanged messages, the violence and chaos of the strike had escalated. Eugene Debs and the other ARU leadership urged nonviolence and peaceful actions. But eventually, through federal action, they had their communications cut off, and they were unable to reach the workers. But as the federal troops arrived, Debs was still optimistic, hoping that they would actually promote calm in the situation. But unfortunately, as noted by Altgeld in his message to the president, they did the opposite, with federal troops killing as many as 30 strikers. Different accounts will tell different stories about exactly what led to this outlash of violence from the federal troops, but... I think it's fair to say that their presence marked an important escalation in the violence. The strike ended up being a failure, suppressed by the company and the government, and with the hiring of more non-union workers, it would fizzle out soon thereafter. Many workers who had been fired during the strike were eventually hired back, but their wages were kept at their low original rate, and they were forced to sign an agreement to never be part of a union. And the leadership of the ARU, including Eugene Debs, were imprisoned. Originally, they were charged with violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which was often used to prosecute unions. However, that was eventually dropped, with the violation of a federal injunction being the ultimate reason for their imprisonment. To clarify how this works legally, the Attorney General, Richard Oldney, who, by the way, had previously been a lawyer for the railroad companies, requested judges issue an injunction, basically a formal legal request to stop doing something. As a result of this injunction being approved, local deputies paid by the railroads, who the Chicago superintendent of police himself described as thugs, were legally allowed to intervene. And this is what led to some of the initial escalation in violence before the federal troop presence, and also helped justify the federal troop presence itself. So the injunction served the purpose of allowing for this intervention in the strike, but it also created a legal claim to imprison anyone who led the strike. Altgeld and his friend Clarence Darrow would strongly object to this legal maneuvering, arguing it essentially allowed the government to create laws on a whim, enforce them with federal troops, and punish people for breaking them without ever actually going through legislation or a proper jury trial. While eventually in 1932 courts were stripped of their power to issue injunctions in labor disputes, for the time being, it was still allowed. The case of Debs, represented by Clarence Darrow to the Supreme Court, was ultimately decided 9-0. to zero. So-called trial by injunction was legally sound. Debs' imprisonment would not be the first time that Altgeld had a dispute with the court, nor the last. In fact, shortly before the Debs case, Altgeld had objected to the Supreme Court's decision that the federal government could not implement an income tax. He charged the court with bias towards the wealthy and powerful, writing the following in the aftermath of the Debs ruling. For a number of years, it has been marked that the decisions of the United States courts were nearly always in favor of corporations. Then it was noticed that no man could be appointed to a federal judgeship unless he was satisfactory to those interests. Over a year ago, the New York World talked about a packed Supreme Court, and that court has within a few days rendered two decisions, which unfortunately tend to confirm its charge. A week ago, it did violence to the Constitution and laws of the land by holding that the government had no power to tax the rich of this country. Now it has stricken down trial by jury and established government by injunction. Forty years ago, the slave power predominated. Today, it is capitalism. 
And along with facing opposition from the court, another institution would once again find itself at odds with Altgeld. Unsurprisingly, the mainstream media would attack him viciously in the aftermath of the Pullman strike. The New York Times published the words of a prominent clergyman who said the following, President Debs of the American Railway Union and Governor Altgeld of Illinois should be placed behind prison bars. They are enemies of society. And Altgeld's now frequent enemy, the Chicago Tribune, was also quite upset. This lying, hypocritical, demagogical, sniveling governor of Illinois does not want the laws enforced. He's a sympathizer with riot, with violence, with lawlessness, and with anarchy. Just as after Haymarket, Altgeld would be attacked as a radical and anarchist. And there would also, once again, be plenty of comparisons to him as a confederate, especially now that he employed an argument against federal intervention. And along with this event's implications for Altgeld and his political influence, there is one other really interesting consequence of both the Pullman strike and the Haymarket affair, which can be seen to this day in America. Around the same time as he would send in troops to violently repress the striking workers, President Cleveland would create the holiday Labor Day, and he strategically chose a day in September rather than embracing the growing workers' holiday, May Day. This was because May 1st, now celebrated as a day for workers around the world, was chosen to commemorate the Haymarket Affair, which Cleveland wanted to avoid association with. When you hear about Labor Day or May Day, know that both actually stem back to the U.S. labor movement of the 1890s, with May Day having a more radical history, while what we celebrate in the U.S. as Labor Day was actually embraced as an attempt of co-option by the government. So in terms of the politics of the 1890s, the Pullman strike was an important moment, dividing the pro-business and pro-labor sides of the Democratic Party. Altgeld would not be able to prevent the violence to workers and the ultimate failure of the strike, but he would make it clear where he stood. And a few years later, at the 1896 Democratic Convention, Altgeld and others would fight to take the party in a different direction. Meanwhile, Eugene Debs would leave the Democratic Party and become a socialist, with his time in prison following the Pullman strike serving as an important moment in his political journey. Mr. Eugene B. Debs will now address you. Fellow workers and comrades, the socialist movement is as wide as the world, and its mission is to win the world, the whole world. What a tremendous task, and what a royal privilege to share in it. While the Haymarket Affair and the Pullman Strike were both pivotal moments for the workers' struggle and incredibly important moments for Altgeld's time as governor, there are many more important achievements from his tenure as governor that are also important to mention. But before we go into depth about these reforms, I want to talk a little bit more about the coalitions and allies Altgeld had to form in order to pass them. After all, in the context of Haymarket and the Pullman strike, we've just focused on Altgeld's use of executive authority as governor. This power was something he used a lot, as he vetoed more bills than any governor before him and was also known for his frequent use of the pardon. But beyond just that, he was part of movements that pushed for and passed several important pieces of legislation. And to do this required more than just the governor's authority. If you've listened to part one, you know we've already discussed some of Altgeld's natural base of support and his allies, which are specifically organized labor and German Americans. And we've also mentioned a few figures close to Altgeld, like Clarence Darrow and George Schilling. But Altgeld's coalition was more complicated and expansive than just these constituencies and figures. Harvey Wish, writing on Altgeld and the progressive tradition, described his administration being composed of various different types of figures. Single taxers, also known as Georgists, socialists, philosophic anarchists, populists, as well as the less doctrinaire liberal democrats. And alongside this wider swath of ideology represented in Altgeld's state government and his supporters, there are two specific organizations which are very important to mention, and whose members directly helped with lobbying efforts for lots of legislation. The first is the Whole House, which was what is known as a settlement house in Chicago. And the idea of a settlement house was to serve as a community space for bringing people of different backgrounds, including rich and poor, together. Most of the prominent social reformers at Whole House were well-off women, and many of the people they worked with were poorer European immigrants. Possibly the most famous person associated with Whole House was one of its co-founders, Jane Addams. Adams was also on the executive committee of another organization which would play a major part in advocating for reforms signed into law by Altgeld, the Civic Federation of Chicago. And together, these forces aligned with the governor to help pass acts of legislation and to administer them. 
So one of the more obvious examples of exploitation that Altgeld and his allies sought to address was child labor. Altgeld had decried the exploitation of children in sweatshops in his inaugural address. And while some other states had passed laws regulating child labor, Illinois had made little progress on the issue. Even moderate laws, such as limiting children to working 12 hours a day, were bitterly opposed. And while Illinois did eventually pass some legislation before the time Altgeld took office, it wasn't enforced, and the practice was still incredibly common in many enterprises, with the exception of coal mines, where unions had successfully advocated for its abolition. But with the help of the whole house social reformers, Florence Kelly and Alzina Stevens, as well as the lobbying efforts of Clarence Darrow, the Factory Inspection Act of 1893 was successfully passed. Altgeld quickly appointed Kelly and Stevens from the whole house as inspector and assistant inspector for industrial conditions. The report the two women completed soon afterwards documented the many crimes that were being committed across the state. As legislation began to become implemented, children below the age of 14 were no longer able to work in factories, and women were prohibited from working more than 8 hours per day or 48 hours per week. This law was an important step towards more reasonable working conditions, Although Altgeld and his allies felt limited by the conservative Illinois legislature and felt it didn't really go far enough. Unfortunately, even this mild progress would be fought hard by the wealthy and powerful. The Illinois Manufacturer Association, which still exists today and is still active politically, was created to unite against the Factory Inspection Act. And they would eventually get what they wanted, when in 1895 the Illinois Supreme Court ruled the law unconstitutional, citing the 14th Amendment. And put simply, this is an insane ruling. The 14th Amendment was created during Reconstruction to provide equal protection under the law. As an author for the Chicago Times Herald put it, What a mockery it is to read that the Supreme Court has demolished this human, civilizing law on the plea that it robs the poor of their right to sell their labor as they will. And it wasn't just in Chicago. Reformers across the world were shocked by the court's brazen decision against the interest of the people. English social reformer William Stead remarked, Legislative restrictions, which even the most reactionary, hard-hearted capitalist in England admits to be indispensable for the protection of labor, are unconstitutional according to the state of Illinois. To address this decision, Altgeld tried to call a special session, but the legislature had other interests. So, at least for the remainder of Altgeld's term, the progress on child labor was overturned by the courts. But during the rest of his time in office, with the help of the Civic Federation of Chicago, Altgeld did manage to sign into law some other pro-labor legislation, including laws supporting arbitration and against discrimination towards union members. The latter I found particularly interesting, given the fact that workers are still to this day being fired and discriminated against for being in a union, with some recent notable examples coming from Starbucks union organizers. Altgeld also passed some civil service reforms, which was another issue he advocated for in his inaugural address. This was a pretty pressing issue at the time, given the extreme and open corruption of many city officials, especially in Chicago. And in fact, legislatures actually refused to vote for the legislation initially, unless it included a significant delay in implementation, essentially giving Chicago officials time to prepare for their impending regulation of their corruption. But eventually it was implemented, creating a merit-based review board for civil servants. Altgeld's term also saw the passing of inheritance and corporate income taxes, the introduction of a parole system allowing for the earlier release of prisoners, and the construction of several hospitals throughout the state. But perhaps the most interesting major legislative struggle Altgeld would face would be his battle against monopolies. This was what the legislature would focus on during the special session I mentioned earlier. In 1895, gas and transport interests of the city of Chicago went to the Illinois legislature with the goal of securing a permanent guaranteed private monopoly over their respective industries. And while the corrupt city officials in Chicago would regularly reauthorize their corporate dominance, they wanted to seal the deal, and avoid having to bribe the same city officials over and over. So instead, they lobbied the state legislators, who had the authority to make their power last. With this bribery, which was well documented in the press at the time, the bill easily passed both houses of the Illinois legislature. Then it would be sent to Altgeld, who had been uncharacteristically silent on the issue up until this point. In fact, his allies worried he might actually sign on to the legislation and betray the values he had been fighting for. Their concerns weren't without reason. To understand the situation Altgeld found himself in, there's a few things I need to explain. 
In 1890, Altgeld had taken out a massive $400,000 loan to help finance his skyscraper, the Unity Building. And in 1893, there was a massive financial recession. So while he was governor, Altgeld focused on his official duties, but he wasn't able to put much time into his own finances. So in the matter of a few years, he'd actually grown quite poor. On top of all this, Altgeld had two major personal stakes in the Monopoly bills. First, his cousin and business partner was actually invested in the Chicago gas business. And second, and more importantly, he was being bribed with half a million dollars to sign the bills into law. So how would Altgeld react to this dilemma, which pitted his own personal well-being and financial success against his values? Well, he ended up vetoing all three of the Monopoly bills. And he would go on to describe the Monopoly's actions in the following terms. It is a flagrant attempt to increase the riches of some men at the expense of others by means of legislation. This decision was hugely financially costly to Altgeld, but he stood firm the rest of his life. And in fact, his continued opposition to corporate monopolies was a big focus of his later political writings and activism. And eventually, Altgeld came to the conclusion that these gas and transit interests should really be owned by the city governments instead of privately owned. So before we move on to the next section, when we're finally going to talk about Altgeld's influence on public education and specifically UIUC, there are a few other interesting things about him and his time as governor that I want to mention here. The first is that in a few ways, Altgeld was more socially progressive than many of his contemporaries. He supported women's right to vote, a movement many of his whole house allies were a part of, and appointed a large number of women to his administration, something incredibly uncommon at the time. He was also hated by many racists in Illinois for his condemnation of an 1893 lynching in Decatur, and he wrote several times about the injustices of colonialism imposed by European countries, specifically England, in Africa and Asia. I'm not trying to say Altgeld was super woke or something compared to today's standards, but he definitely didn't totally conform to the racism and misogyny of his time. And don't worry, I will get into some of the caveats to that in a little bit. So another thing I want to touch on about Altgeld is his physical appearance. Several sources wrote pretty negatively about Altgeld's appearance. They would mainly focus on his cleft lip, which he mostly covered with his beard. Although on a positive note, he was also known to have very expressive eyes. I think it's possible that his somewhat unusual appearance was what motivated some of the bullying of his childhood. And if you're interested for looking at him yourself, you can of course Google some pictures, and to be honest, I don't think he looks so bad. But clearly this perception was something that impacted his life and was remarked upon by observers. I also want to touch on Altgeld's health, which is definitely an interesting theme to follow throughout his life. And as I mentioned in part one, his time in the Civil War really truly never left him the same. He was noted as seeming physically uncoordinated and regularly in physical distress when he was giving speeches. And what observer noted when he had to talk for even longer, he seemed to be completely exhausted and in a great deal of pain. But with that out of the way, let's touch on another really important aspect of Altgeld's time as governor, his impact on higher education and specifically UIUC. Altgeld Hall is one of the most unique and beloved buildings on campus. To put it simply, as governor, Altgeld had a massive impact on higher education, specifically public education in Illinois and on the University of Illinois. He was driven in part by a concern that private universities, like the University of Chicago, were becoming increasingly controlled by the interests of their wealthy funders, like John Rockefeller. This was a growing concern among many at the time, especially given incidents like the 1895 dismissal of a UChicago economist who supported the public ownership of utilities. So along with this concern about the power and influence of the wealthy on private universities, there was also the fact that Illinois was sending students to other states to study, rather than promoting its own educational institutions. And Altgeld noted this himself as one of the reasons why he felt a special need to support the University of Illinois. As the executive of the state, I feel a deep interest in all of its institutions, and I feel a special interest in this university. I am anxious to have a university here to which our people can send their young men and their young women instead of sending them east, a university that shall perpetuate the rugged strength and stalwart manhood which characterizes the people of the Mississippi Valley. And along with his support for U of I, Altgeld supported a variety of schools throughout the state. In Carbondale and Bloomington, he supported the so-called normal schools, which were founded before his term to train teachers. 
He also negotiated to acquire the pharmacy school of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Chicago, which would go on to become the University of Illinois College of Medicine. And along with supporting these already established institutions, he helped found Northern and Eastern Illinois University during his term as well. But for now, let's focus on the University of Illinois, which is, after all, supposed to be the focus of this podcast, although I realize that this two-part episode may be starting to feel a little distant from that. Altgeld applauded the U of I's existing offerings, especially in engineering and science, but he knew it hadn't yet achieved the desired reputation, even in those fields. At the time, it was still known as a cow college, and most people just associated it with the practical education prescribed to it by the Morrill Act. And it was under Altgeld that this would first begin to change. He would win enormous increases in fundings for the campus in Champaign and Urbana, doubling their normal state sum from $40,000 to $80,000 in 1893, and winning an astounding $424,000 for the university in 1895. The impact of Altgeld's support was put simply by the U of I president, Edmund James. Governor Altgeld raised this institution from a comparatively insignificant country college to the rank of the Great School of Learning, the foundations of which are broad and deep. This contribution would be felt in many different ways, including the state's support for the campus during its financial crisis, which I went over towards the end of episode one. But the one thing that's most obvious to focus on in this episode is the construction of a new building on campus, what is today known as Altgeld Hall. Now, there were several buildings that were constructed because of these funds from Altgeld and his administration, but I want to focus on this one most obviously because it's now named after him. Initially built to serve as the campus library, the process of constructing Altgeld Hall reflected several of the governor's deeply held beliefs. First, he felt very strongly that all construction should be done by union labor. This was not only a political stand, but a practical one. As during his own time overseeing various construction projects, he was convinced that union laborers were the most competent. Altgeld also requested that the governor could send inspections to the site at any time to assure things went according to plan. But what ended up being the most contentious, and possibly the most interesting, about the construction of Altgeld Hall was the architectural choices. Altgeld was a major proponent of the Tudor Gothic style of architecture. This style looks very similar to what comes to mind when you think of a castle. And it's exactly the type of building that was constructed on many different universities across Illinois with the help of Altgeld. But at U of I, things went a little differently. The university came to consider a proposal for the building from renowned architect Daniel Burnham. Burnham proposed both a Gothic and a more Greek-inspired design. And while Altgeld encouraged the board to select his preferred Gothic style, they ended up selecting the Greek one for cost and practical reasons. But as you might know, Altgeld Hall isn't really a Greek style. And a big reason why is that this decision didn't sit well with Altgeld, who insisted on a special meeting to relitigate the matter. During the meeting, the original motion was overturned in a narrow 5-6 to six vote. Burnham, frustrated with the intervention of the governor and his architectural plans, resigned from his role. So the university decided to call upon some members of its own architecture department, Nathan Ricker and James White. They proposed a Romanesque design with semicircular archers and a bell tower. While this was not the preferred style Altgeld desired, the board had made their decision, and he conceded to their wishes as they approved this design. In 1967, a Daily Illini article offered an interesting perspective on this architectural conflict and how the final result actually came to be. It included commentary from the grandson of then-university president Andrew Draper. Altgeld and Draper had some political differences, as Draper was a conservative Republican but they nonetheless got along as they both shared an interest in providing more funding for the University of Illinois. In his writings on the appointment of Draper, Altgeld praised him as someone who understood the needs of the people when it came to education. But as this 1967 Daily Illini article frames it, one thing they disagreed on was what would become Altgeld Hall. Draper favored a design with a bell tower, whereas Altgeld wanted a more castle-style building. And according to Draper's grandson, the approval of this design was something Altgeld never forgave Draper for. So whatever Altgeld's ultimate thoughts were on the building, it legacy now bears his name. But this wasn't actually always the case. In fact, many aspects of Altgeld Hall have changed over time. As I mentioned before, the original funding for this building came to construct a library. And it did serve as a library and community space, kind of like the Atlanta Union, for a number of years. Then it became home to the law department, and eventually the mathematics department as it is now. While it was still the law building in 1920, the famous chimes were installed. 
And finally, in 1941, the building was designated as Altgeld Hall. It was not the first time people had suggested commemorating Altgeld on campus. In fact, the university president, Edmund James, had said there should be a statue of him constructed somewhere. But perhaps because of his somewhat politically controversial nature, any celebration of him was delayed until decades after his death. The popular retelling of Altgeld's life in the biography Eagle Forgotten, published in 1938, was probably a reason for this eventual change in spirit. For a deeper look into the decision-making process behind naming Altgeld Hall, I went to the university archives. And there, I found a letter from University of Illinois trustee James Cleary. Cleary admitted that his upbringing had conditioned him to look poorly upon Altgeld. But upon later reflection and reading his newly published biography, he grew to appreciate him. And Cleary would be one of the trustee members who would help move the process along in order to name the building after him. At the time, this was objected to by the dean of the College of Law and the president of the university, as well as a Republican member of the board who apparently suspected that this change was some sort of democratic plot. But despite their objections, the decision was approved, with the condition that the honor solely be based on Altgeld's contributions to the university, rather than his service to the state of Illinois or the country as a whole. The plaque outside Altgeld Hall makes this clear. And I also have to be really pedantic and mention that the plaque also has a factual inaccuracy, stating that Altgeld was governor from 1892 to 1896, when those were the years he was elected and lost re-election, and he was actually in office from 1893 to 1897. Going back to the letter and the decision to name the building after Altgeld, Cleary notes that it may have been impossible to name the building after him without the narrow focus of appreciation of his contributions to the university, and eventually concludes his letter by asking that it not be published anywhere. So sorry about that, James. While the Board of Trustees did take a narrow focus of Altgeld's life as the reason to commemorate him, there were people at the time who wanted to honor Altgeld's entire legacy. Irving Dillard, a journalist from Southern Illinois, wrote an article around this time titled The Eagle That Is Remembered, arguing that renaming the building had begun to flip the moniker of Altgeld as an eagle forgotten. He felt that Altgeld's progressive policies should be embraced, and compared him to then-President Franklin Roosevelt, calling his policies an Illinois New Deal. So, while he was defamed in many ways throughout his life, his memory still lives on on the University of Illinois campus, even if there was some hesitance in fully embracing his politics. And at other campuses, his complete vision of a Tudor Gothic-style castle was realized, with Old Main at Eastern Illinois University and Cook Hall at Illinois State University, as well as at Northern Illinois University and Southern Illinois University, where the castles are even named after him too. And in fact, as someone from Carbondale, I am proud to say that SIUC's Altgeld Hall was named after him in 1896, the earliest of any of the buildings, and before U of I's Altgeld Hall was even completed. It's also the oldest standing building on the Carbondale campus of Southern Illinois University, and I have to say I think it's a pretty cool looking one. But before we finish talking about these Altgeld-inspired buildings, there are two things I really do need to mention, which are both big parts of the popular culture around these buildings. The first is the idea that all of Altgeld's castles are actually designed so that if you put them all together, they would create one big castle with connecting secret pathways between them. I honestly really like this idea. It creates kind of a sense of wonder about all these connected buildings, which do share a lot of history in common. The second, specific to U of I campus idea I want to talk about, is the notoriety of the Dairy Queen in the basement of Altgeld Hall. It's mentioned all the time in online discussions about the building, and I've actually had several people ask me if I was going to mention it in this episode. And honestly, while I have now mentioned it, I don't really have a lot to add onto either of these things, so if you want to learn more about them, you can probably do some research yourself. So with that out of the way, we finally circled back to where we started, with the namesake of Altgeld on campus here at UIUC. But before we end this episode, there's still more to tell about Altgeld's life after he was governor. Despite his massive confrontations with the powerful elites and major corporations, the media, and politics, Altgeld had come out the other side not just as still alive, but still incredibly influential. In going into the 1896 election, he was a major player in the Democratic Party and helped shape the direction of the country as a whole. The 1896 election was shaped largely by one political issue, and it's one we haven't really talked about at all so far, 
The issue was monetary policy, and specifically whether the U.S. should keep the gold standard or switch to a dual metal system with gold and silver. The U.S. historically used the gold standard, which meant that the U.S. dollar was tied to a concrete value in gold. But during the Civil War, this connection had been lifted in order to allow for more spending, bringing us closer to the system we have today, which isn't tied to any metal. But this didn't last very long, as after the Civil War, there were concerns of inflation, and it was decided that the gold standard was preferable once again. Now, in the 1890s, this conversation was once again being hotly contested. A big reason for this was that the economic recession of 1893 caused voters to center their economic problems, and the monetary question was a proxy for that. The populists and many others who saw themselves as advocates for the downtrodden were advocating for bimetallism arguing that the introduction of silver could allow for more spending on the people. On the other hand, the mainstream of both the Democratic and Republican Party favored maintaining the gold standard. Essentially, bimetallists, also known as silverites, wanted to expand and grow the economy through monetary change, while gold standard advocates wanted to push for stability and strength in the system that they had. Altgeld himself didn't really weigh in or care about this issue for much of his political life, but eventually the political conditions of the time forced him to study it and he became committed to a more expansionary monetary policy, with bimetallism being the logical first step. So Altgeld would go on to organize with other silverites and progressives across the country to ensure that their position, and not that of the current Democratic administration in Grover Cleveland, would be represented in the 1896 presidential race. Going into the Democratic convention, the progressives and the silverites had an important question that they needed to ask. Who would be their presidential candidate? Altgeld was popular enough that he was getting asked to run himself, even getting a letter from the governor of Texas asking him to put his hat in the ring. But in response, Altgeld expressed several different concerns. While I am an enthusiastic American and almost a crank on the subject of Republican institutions and of government by the people, still I do not know what effect the buzzing of a presidential bee might have upon my nervous system. I notice that it weakens most men. They are in constant fear of spoiling their chances and consequently accomplish nothing. And there was also the fact that he wasn't actually eligible to be president, since he was born in Germany to German parents. So instead, William Jennings Bryan, a representative from Nebraska, was chosen. At the convention, Altgeld played an important, although sometimes hesitant, role. He was asked to speak on the convention floor and refused, until the convention passed a motion inviting him to do so. In his speech, he addressed the important political issue of the time, the metal question, arguing that preserving the gold standard only helped to serve the elite from New York to London, and that the U.S. should not succumb to the English imperial interests and choose the gold standard. The much more famous speech at this convention came from William Jennings Bryan, not Altgeld. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Bryant's speech, which became known as the Cross of Gold speech, rallied the Silverite and Progressive forces and was seen as the moment in which they secured their victory over the Democratic Party. Indeed, Bryan would become the nominee in 1896, and he would run on a platform shaped by Altgeld and his allies. Along with bimetallism, it included support for labor arbitration and taxing the rich, as well as a rejection of the current way the courts were run and rule by injunction. These policies, shaped by Altgeld's experience from Haymarket to the Pullman strike, reflected a rejection of the outgoing president, Grover Cleveland, and an ushering in of a new progressive and populist leadership of the Democratic Party. Needless to say, the ruling class was not a big fan of this more left-wing development. In fact, the 1896 campaign was unprecedented with the level of corporate involvement. Led by wealthy businessman Mark Hanna, the Republican nominee, William McKinley, was supported to the tune of $3.5 million, more than had ever been spent before on a presidential campaign. McKinley and Bryan's campaigns could not have been more different. Republican McKinley relied on his over 1,400 paid staffers and outspent Bryan 20 times over. Bryan relied on his grassroots appeal and traveled the entire country to promote his candidacy. Meanwhile, McKinley favored a front porch campaign, addressing only those who came to visit his home in Ohio. From his front porch, McKinley presented himself as an alternative to the harmful policies of the Cleveland administration, and emphasized stability and strength under a gold standard. Bryan was described by McKinley and his allies as a dangerous radical, and Altgeld was painted as a mastermind behind his extremist plans. 
This was made clear by the harsh condemnation of both figures by the media and political elite. Harper's Weekly published the following screed against him. Governor Altgeld is the brains and inspiration of the movement for which Mr. Bryan stands. It is he who chose Mr. Bryan in preference to Mr. Bland. Governor Altgeld preferred the impulsive, susceptive, imaginative, yielding Mr. Bryan, who would be as clay in the hands of the potter under the astute control of the ambitious and unscrupulous Illinois communist. He was also attacked by future president Theodore Roosevelt in perhaps the most outrageous quote of any included in this episode. The sentiment now animating a large proportion of our people can only be suppressed, as the Commune of Paris was suppressed by taking 10 or a dozen of its leaders out, standing them against a wall, and shooting them dead. In that same article, he also challenged Altgeld to a sword fight. In response, Altgeld reportedly let out a hearty laugh. His time in a cavalry unit of the Union Army had left him pretty prepared for such an endeavor. Of course, the fight would never happen. But these remarks seemingly worked for the Republicans. On election day, the result was clear. McKidley had won a resounding victory in the Electoral College, and Bryan was defeated. Numerous factors, from the massive financial contributions of the wealthy to McKinley, to the recession tainting the Democratic Party who had held the presidency, had led to this outcome. Altgeld personally believed that the Democrats lost in large part due to their association with the anti-worker Cleveland administration. And this loss was not just felt at the presidential level, but in Illinois, whose congressional delegation shifted dramatically towards the Republicans, and whose progressive Democratic governor was defeated by Republican John Tanner. During the campaign, Altgeld focused on garnering support for Bryan, going as far as New York to give speeches for him, and didn't focus much on his governor's race. In fact, he told Illinois voters that even if they wouldn't vote for him, they should go cast a vote for Bryan. Despite this, Altgeld actually performed slightly better than Bryan in Illinois but it wasn't enough to overcome the large Republican margin of victory. The election of 1896 would seal the end of Altgeld's time in office. As the end of his term and the inauguration of Tanner approached, Altgeld prepared his retirement speech. But when the day came, in an unprecedented move, Tanner forbade Altgeld from giving the farewell message allowed to every previous Illinois governor. Tanner, pressed on by the Chicago Tribune, reportedly said that Illinois has had enough of that anarchist. The speech Altgeld had prepared was not hostile to Tanner, and in fact went out of his way to concede the election and wish well to his successor. But he did maintain the righteousness of his actions as governor, and while the speech was never delivered, it was published soon after. So, as we move on to Altgeld's fairly short life post-governor, I want to leave you with this quote from his undelivered speech. We go out of power with nothing to regret. Conscious of having struggled for a great cause, we smile at the frowns of fate and go forth with renewed hope and a firmer purpose. Altgeld would never hold public office again, although he would try, running in the Chicago mayor's race of 1899 against Carter Harrison, who in his view had betrayed the interests of the working class of the city. In this election, fully embracing his opposition to private monopolies, Altgeld would run under the Municipal Ownership Party, and place a fairly distant third in the election. But the next year, once again, in 1900, Altgeld would be a major player at the Democratic Party convention, who, once again, nominated William Jennings Bryan for president. In a rematch of 1896, it was McKinley versus Bryan, with McKinley winning once again, this time by an even larger margin. And Theodore Roosevelt, who four years ago had called for Bryan and Altgeld to be rounded up and shot, was now vice president, and would later become president after an anarchist assassinated McKinley. The main issue of this campaign would be U.S. imperialism, and specifically what to do with the Philippines and other areas the U.S. took in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. Altgeld, Bryan, and the Democratic Party took what has been described as an anti-imperialist position on the war, although I think under closer scrutiny that probably isn't the best way to describe it. To be clear, they did take a better position than McKinley and opposed the U.S. annexation of the Philippines, but they largely supported the U.S. taking control of Puerto Rico and even Cuba. Altgeld himself wrote in favor of this. He maintained that he was against all colonialism, and clearly the Philippines could rule themselves and should not be subjugated to U.S. control. However, somehow he managed to reason that controlling Puerto Rico and Cuba wouldn't be colonial, 
and that it was actually the will of the people there to be part of the United States. This reveals what I think is probably Altgeld's largest political blind spot, when you're looking at it from a modern lens. He took the assumptions of U.S. settler colonialism for granted. After all, Thomas Jefferson, and even sometimes Andrew Jackson, were cited as philosophical inspirations for him. I think this misguided faith in these American figures and values led to his lack of consideration for the lives of Native Americans, and in this case, a failure to understand the reality of what taking over Puerto Rico or Cuba would mean. But on a lighter note, I also found this interesting remark in the section Altgelt wrote about what to do with territories acquired in the Spanish-American War. It is probable that in the future Canada will ask for admission into our republic, and when she does, we must admit her. I'm not really sure where the idea that Canada was going to want to join the U.S. came from, but hey, why not? Anyway, getting back to the election of 1900, the less imperialist Democrats were defeated by the more imperialist Republicans. This election would be the last major political contestation of Altgeld's life, although of course he wasn't running himself, but he did play an important role in the Democratic Party's decision-making and their convention. So at this point, Altgeld was 52 years old. After the election, while he would still give speeches and remain somewhat politically active, he returned to his previous profession as a lawyer. After all, he was no longer a wealthy man and needed to pay the bills. He got a job working at the law office of Clarence Darrow, who could now return a favor to Altgeld. But he wouldn't stay there for long, because Altgeld wouldn't live for much longer. On March 11, 1902, he would give a speech criticizing the English treatment of the Boers in South Africa. If you may have noticed a bit of a trend, Altgeld really didn't seem to care for the British Empire. Anyways, after speaking for 45 minutes, he felt dizzy and collapsed. By the next morning, he had died, suffering from a cerebral hemorrhage. After his death, his final political publication, The Cost of Something from Nothing, was released. It would follow up on his work in Penal Machinery and Live Questions, which was a compilation released in 1890 of various writings of his. The Cost of Something from Nothing was also a collection of writings, but it was all geared around the same theme, the ways in which wealth and greed tainted society. Here's one of the last lines of his final book. When the sum and the total are told, it will be written that he who takes more than he gives courts death and invites destruction. At his funeral, Altgeld was eulogized by Clarence Darrow, among others, and William Jennings Bryan gave a speech at his grave. Eugene Debs, now a major socialist figure, wrote an amazing piece titled Altgeld the Liberator, commemorating his life. It began with the line, John Peter Altgeld has joined Abraham Lincoln in the realms of the immortals, and ended with, the grandchildren of his slayers will seek his works for knowledge and inspiration, and to the coming generations he will speak forever. I definitely encourage everyone listening to this to read the whole piece by Eugene Debs. You can find it with a quick Google search, and it's really amazing. Along with his political allies, even the mainstream media, which had been against him basically his whole life, wrote some nice things about Altgeld. And of course, since then, many more would have lots to write about his life, which was cut short at just 54 years old. As we move on to the conclusion of this episode, I want to share this interesting remark from Harry Barnard, the author of Altgeld's most famous biography, Eagle Forgotten. You know, some people uh, do their biographies good, and they do their biographers a favor by dying a little early. You know, some people ruin their lives you know, by living too long. Of a biographer I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe we're doing this, no, that you and I. You know, Altgeld, it may be that one of the great things about Altgeld was the sad fact that he was only 57 when he died. I think there's an interesting truth hidden in the idea that Barnard presents. After all, if Altgeld lives much longer, maybe I would have had to make a three-part podcast. But in all seriousness, I think it's more interesting as a reflection on what Altgeld's later life would have looked like. In the interview, Barnard, who has written biographies of many others as well, elaborates that many people go on to betray their own values later in their life. He cites the example of Upton Sinclair uncritically meeting with Lyndon Johnson as the Vietnam War was going on. Altgeld, on the other hand, died pretty young. Who knows what he would have gone on to do? We can definitely hope it would have been great, but it's not really possible for us to know that. 
All right, so before I go on to more serious conclusions that I think we can take from Othgeld's story, I want to mention two interesting historical ironies surrounding the characters he influenced. And I think some of these illustrate some of the broader contradictions in this era of progressive politics. The first is to do with two very important figures in Altgeld's life, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan. Despite their many other endeavors, including those mentioned in this podcast, these two figures are very well known by many for a specific case in which they actually argued against each other. In the famous Scopes Monkey trial, Darrow defended a high school teacher who got in legal trouble for teaching evolution, while Bryan argued for the prosecution. But this isn't the only example of those associated with Altgeld having seemingly contradictory connections. The truth is, the entire so-called progressive era of the United States, which began as Altgeld was reaching prominence, was filled with figures on either side of many important questions. But what perhaps struck me the most after doing the research for this episode is that Theodore Roosevelt, a strident imperialist who seemingly hated Altgeld, became of such an important figure in this progressive era. Interestingly, Roosevelt also worked closely with whole house social reformer and prominent Altgeld ally, Jane Addams, especially in his later stint with the Progressive Party. Within this contradictory movement, there were people like Teddy Roosevelt that despised Altgeld, and probably many more people who were inspired, or at least appreciative, of him. In Illinois, there would be more progressives that followed in Altgeld's path. For example, Edward Dunn, who would serve as mayor of Chicago and governor of Illinois. He worked with Clarence Darrow and Theodore Roosevelt, and advocated for municipal ownership, as well as being the governor to sign into law women's right to vote in Illinois. Many other allies of Altgeld would go on to found and participate in organizations ranging from the American Civil Liberties Union, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the International Workers of the World, and the Socialist Party of America, to name a few. I think that this historical memory of what Altgeld's life symbolized is so important to keep in mind, especially when so many of the events of his life mirror throughout history and until today. There's perhaps no better example of this than Altgeld's frequent conflict with two major institutions, the media and the courts. For me, the major takeaway from Altgeld's status as the most hated man in America is that if you really want to confront power, you're not going to be respected or liked by many people. An example people often reference about this is Martin Luther King Jr., who was hated by the vast majority of white people during his life. I'm not trying to say MLK Jr. and Altgeld are the same or something, but simply that people who challenge the status quo and the powerful will be met with public backlash, and very often the corporate media will be the driving force in trying to get people to hate them. And in terms of the court system, I think the insane decisions of the court that Altgeld fought against, like making it illegal to have an income tax, and legal to imprison labor leaders based solely on an injunction, show the often reactionary nature of the courts. The Supreme Court and the judicial system as a whole is not really there to promote justice. It's part of the same capitalist system as everything else, and it should be treated as a political decision-making body because that's what it is. It's not some institution we can't change or criticize. I'd also be remiss if I didn't say something about higher education and UIUC here. I think what Altgeld's contribution to Illinois universities show is that there can be and should be changes in how we view and support public education. The current, frankly, essentially privatized system where universities beg for money for rich donors, who in turn influence the administration, has got to go. It's the same thing Altgeld's worried about with UChicago. And I promise I don't intend to bring this up in every episode, but there is a strong parallel from the scandal that rocked UChicago in Altgeld's time with a professor being allegedly dismissed for his more left-wing views, and the very clearly politically and financially motivated decision to unhire Stephen Salida at UIUC. I think, unfortunately, our modern public universities are in many ways now closer to the interests of wealthy individuals than the people as a whole, and we need to turn things around in the other direction. Zooming out a little bit, I think the important stands that Altgeld took prove a broader point about arguments we see today about what's politically feasible. Yes, there will often be forces working in opposition to positive changes in our society. They may be very powerful, but throughout history there are always people struggling on the right side of things, and there's always a path towards victory. The successes that came out of Altgeld's term as governors are examples of that. And sure, Altgeld was a product of his time in some ways, but that didn't mean he accepted every reactionary value of it. 
When we look back at history, it's impossible to judge people of the past purely based on contemporary morality and politics, but it's also impossible to separate those things from our views of them. With that in mind, I think there are things we can critique him for, and I hope I have done an okay job at that when it's appropriate, but I think there are a whole lot of issues where Altgeld really impressively stood on the right side of history. And ultimately, that's what I think we can remember him for. Not as an individual who accomplished a bunch of great things, no one person can do all that, but as an important part of various social movements and organizations that fought for a better world. There were many people around him, from his wife to his political allies to his many supporters, that made these achievements possible. So I hope that when you see Altgeld Hall at UIUC, or any other building that shares his name and legacy, I hope these victories, and the people, including Altgeld himself who fought for them, can be remembered. So to close out this episode, there is one more story I need to tell. I promise it will be a quick one. Rachel Lindsay, born in 1879, grew up in a house across from the governor's mansion. He grew up to become a poet, and inspired by Altgeld's action, when he died, he wrote a poem commemorating him. This poem was titled, The Eagle That Is Forgotten. It was the namesake for Altgeld's 1938 biography and this podcast episode. So before we go, I want to read it for you. Sleep softly, eagle forgotten, under the stone. Time has its way with you there, and the clay has its own. We've buried him now, thought your foes, and in secret rejoiced. They made a brave show of their mourning, their hatred unvoiced. They had snarled at you, barked at you, foamed at you day after day. Now you were ended. They praised you and laid you away. The others that mourned you in silence and terror and truth. The widow bereft of her crust, the boy without youth. The mocked and the scorned and the wounded, the lame and the poor. That should have remembered forever, remembered no more. Where are those lovers of yours? On what name did they call? The lost, that in armies wept over your funeral pall. They call on the names of a hundred high valiant ones, a hundred white eagles that have risen the sons of your sons. The zeal in their wings is a zeal that your dreaming began, the valor that wore out your soul in the service of man. Sleep softly, eagle forgotten, under the stone. Time has its way with you there and the clay has its own. Sleep on, O brave-hearted, O wise man that kindled the flame. To live in mankind is far more than to live in a name. To live in mankind far, far more than to live in a name. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of the Learning and Labor podcast. I hope it gave you a more informed view of who John Peter Altgeld was, so the next time you see the building or are otherwise reminded of his legacy, you have that important context. And of course, I also hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and had a good experience. I once again want to thank everyone who helped with this episode, and specifically Justin, Samir, and Muriel, who all uh, read different quotes for this episode's uh, audio. I uh, usually ask my guests uh, or, you know, if people I'm collaborating with, if there's anything they want to have promoted or share. For this episode, all that they mentioned was to say Free Palestine, which uh, I'm more than happy to share on this podcast. It's been on my mind a lot uh, while making this episode, even if, you know, the topic is very unrelated. And I definitely encourage people to uh, do what they can, whether it's attending a, a protest, writing to their elected official or anything like that to support a ceasefire and other efforts to stop the violence towards people in Palestine right now. And I'll also include a link to donate to some relevant charities in the description of this podcast episode. As always, the overall sources for the episode are also going to be available in the podcast description. And I also believe that uh, now on Spotify, I know it's been this way on Apple Music, you can rate the podcast if you want to. So if you want to get more people listening to Learning and Labor, that would help us out. But yeah, just uh, thanks again so much for listening, and I'll leave it at that. Bye-bye. Learning and Labor. 
Station WILL has carried a special program this week giving information about the University of Illinois. If you have been a listener to these broadcasts, you have heard more or less about what the university does, how it does it, and what it hopes to do. Thank you, Dr. Willard. Yes, well, the, uh, I think the a, a, a ideal subject for a biography is a person who left an impact upon society. I mean, my test of a person is uh, if he dies, does he leave a hole? If he leaves a hole, he's missed, and that is a person who has left a, an, effective, an effective life.